Hey friends, welcome back to the Journal Feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine, where we're trying to make keeping up with the literature as easy as possible for you. Now, let's take a quick look ahead and spoil everything that we covered from this week. First off, frequent flyer miles might not be available at your hospital just yet, but there's a good way to see if your regulars are low risk enough to go home, only to come back again, probably. Second, the best way to sound brainy as a doctor is to up your statistics game, and we're going to help teach you how. Following that, you can't neglect the interictal period. Seizure patients need more care than just breaking their seizures. From the fourth article, two of the most brilliant pieces of technology, POCUS and telescopes, using ultrasound to evaluate intussusception. And then lastly, my favorite criteria of all time, the Scarbosa criteria. Now, I'm convinced that these criteria were the inspiration for a certain pirate, the original captain of the Black Pearl, Captain Barbosa's name. I'm probably wrong, though. Anyways, this is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the amazing Jonathan Brewer, Ashley Haggerty, Sam Parnell, and Clay Smith. And so without further ado, I bring you the first article, which was titled Guidelines for Reasonable and Appropriate Care in the Emergency Department, Grace, Recurrent Low-Risk Chest Pain in the Emergency Department out of the Journal of Academic Emergency Medicine. If you have to put the words emergency department twice in your article title, then it's probably not a great title. Moving on. Up to 40% of patients return to the emergency department with recurrent chest pain. A lot of the time, it's going to be nothing worrisome. But one of those times, it's going to be something higher risk. And you don't want to be the one that misses that one time and to not catch their MI. At the same time, though, they keep coming back. And so the faster that you can safely send them home, the better. This article tries to give you a way to do just that, identifying those low-risk patients and managing them effectively. We have eight evidence-based recommendations to do just that. Recommendation number one, just by the way, all of these patients who are considered quote-unquote low risk in this study are called so because they have a heart score of four or less, or they're low risk by any other validated score. Now then, for low-risk recurrent chest pain patients that has been going on for more than three hours, a single high-sensitivity troponin reasonably excludes ACS within 30 days. This is a low level of evidence. Recommendation number two, in low-risk patients with recurrent chest pain and normal stress tests within the last year, they do not need another stress test. Routine stress testing is not recommended. Again, low level of evidence. Recommendation number three, there is insufficient evidence to recommend hospitalization of these low-risk patients over discharging them to mitigate their risks. This wasn't actually based on any evidence at all, so take that with a grain of salt. Sometimes you might need to do what's necessary and admit them, and other times not. Recommendation number four. In adults with a recurrent low-risk chest pain and an angiography showing less than 50% stenosis within the last five years, these authors recommend a quick outpatient referral over admission. This is a low level of evidence. I like this one, though, because it helps us make use of some important data points, and that is their previous angiographies. Recommendation number five, if their cath was completely clean, then again, outpatient management is appropriate if that cath was done within the last five years. Again, low level of evidence. This is a nice suggestion because it gives you an expiry date on patients having a clean cath. That's five years. After that, we had a recommendation number six. Okay, now, if they had a prior coronary computed tomography angiography, a CCTA, within the last two years, that showed no stenosis, then 
All you need to do for a workup is a single high sensitivity troponin to exclude ACS. This is a moderate level of evidence, the best level of evidence we actually have in this whole study. There's another nice expiry date, but CCTAs don't last as long as cats, just two years. Recommendation number seven. They recommend using a validated screening tool for depression and anxiety in these patients, as treating that could potentially decrease their amount of return visits. This had a very low level of evidence. And of course, this assumes that you've already ruled out ACS. Don't just chalk it up to anxiety and send them home. And then finally, recommendation number eight. If they do screen positive for anxiety or depression, obviously you should refer them to treatment. That's pretty fair, but still a low level of evidence. In a spoonful, those were eight good points for helping you deal with recurrent low-risk chest pain. My favorite was the five-year expiry date on a clean calf. I like that. Anyways, those patients can get outpatient management, which is appropriate. And that brings us then to the second article, which was titled Statistical Analysis and Reporting Guidelines for Chest out of the journal Chest. Now, as a science communicator myself, and having been educated in a system that woefully neglects statistical literacy, I've often struggled with both understanding statistics and then struggling with it all over again trying to communicate them, both to you listeners as well as to any patients or when I do any teaching. Let's cover a few statistical pearls from the chest that will help you keep on the ball when it comes to statistics. There are right ways and wrong ways to do studies. RCTs should follow the consort guidelines, and observational studies should follow the strobe guidelines. If you see no mention of either of these, then think twice about that study. Of course, we couldn't talk about statistics without talking about p-values. Recall that we don't accept the null hypothesis. We either reject or don't reject it. There's no middle ground where you can say that a p-value that's a tiny little bit above 0.05 is a trend. A trend implies movement, and you're kind of implying that the movement is going to be towards statistical significance. But this number won't suddenly change. The value is above 0.05, and therefore did not meet that measure of statistical significance. End of story. Also, the article says that a p-value of 0.03 does not mean that there is a 3% probability that the results are due to chance. Rather, it is the probability of finding the observed result or a more extreme result when the null hypothesis is actually true. This is just like that the 95% confidence interval does not mean that there is a 95% chance that the true value falls within that range of numbers. But rather, that if the experiment was repeated in different samples, there's a 95% chance that the true parameter value would fall in that range. Now, this seems like splitting hairs, and honestly, so far as I can tell, I really think it is. But if you're a proper stats geek and you can tell me when either of these things, one being supposedly wrong and the other being supposedly more right, would cause you to be led astray if you more believed in the first one, please Leave a comment on the blog. I would love to understand this better. Then, of course, even if your p-value is rocking, I'm talking 0.000001, like you're doing a physics study, statistical significance does not equate clinical significance. While it's important to state these statistical facts, they should also be linked with their clinical importance. The next point is that many times it is mentioned that a study has used multivariate or propensity analysis to help mitigate confounders. But you'll notice that I just said that it helps mitigate confounders, 
It does not remove them and is never a replacement for a proper randomized control trial. And now finally, the last point is one that I'm definitely guilty of. The authors recommended that we avoid using the words may or might. If something may be true, then that's why we do the study. If we're still saying may by the end of the study, then why on earth did we do the study in the first place? I know it feels like a good way to avoid implying causality, but there are other ways that we can do this. Things like just stating what you know is true. For example, there is evidence that X was associated with Y. This is a good point and one that I'm going to try to apply in the future of this podcast. In a spoonful, statistics are hard, but they're manageable. Just be really careful, and we can do it. Now, the third article titled Initial Management of Seizure in Adults, out of the New England Journal of Medicine. Most ER talk about seizures is all about status epilepticus. And I think the reason for this is pretty obvious. It's got a really cool name. <laughs> but really, we need to worry about more than just breaking patient seizures. The follow-up that they get and the subsequent care can drastically affect their life. So after you've made them, you know, stay alive, then you need to start to think about their life going forward. This review focuses on the testing needed to make a diagnosis of epilepsy, and then how to proceed from there. Identifying a first seizure can be difficult. There are a lot of mimics, and we're not going to go into that too much. But you need a good history, preferably with a lot of collateral information, particularly filling in those gaps that the patient was unconscious for. For the first episode of a true seizure, these patients will need head imaging. For adults, an urgent MRI is best to tease out subtle things that you could miss on CT. Blood work with extended lights and glucose, as well as a 12-lead ECG, should also be done. They will also need urgent interictal EEG. The sooner the better, essentially, as when it's done quickly, it better identifies epileptiform activity. Neurology are probably going to be the ones that make this decision, but once the risk of subsequent seizures exceeds 60% over the next 10 years, then it's time to start an anti-epileptic drug. These are typically lifelong drugs with side effects that could range from teratogenicity to Steven Johnson syndrome. But the decision to start these medications can be life-changing. Lastly, as with any diagnosis, behavioral modification is an important point to address. They should limit alcohol intake and try to maintain good sleep hygiene to minimize the occurrence of future seizures as well as having the risks of seizures during dangerous activities like driving discussed with them. In a spoonful, your job doesn't end when the seizure stops. First-time adult seizures will need head imaging, basic labs, and an ECG. Speak with neurology to risk stratify them and decide if anti-epileptic drugs are right for them. Then the fourth article titled Ultrasonographic Diagnosis of Intussusception in Children, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis out of the Journal of Ultrasound of Medicine. Different age groups of little babies have different risks for various severe abdominal pathologies. From three months to a year, a major concern is intussusception, which is telescoping of the bowel. I'm explaining that for mostly just to clarify the bad joke I made earlier. This causes colicky abdominal pain, excessive crying, and can even progress to vomiting and blood per rectum if ischemia occurs. This classic picture only happens in about 20% of cases, though, so a quick and non-invasive test is a must for these patients. And enter POCUS stage left. We've already covered an article detailing that history, exam, and x-ray are really inaccurate in these cases, so you simply can't do without POCUS. The authors meta-analyzed 14 studies, mostly retrospective studies. The studies included scans done by emergency physicians as well as sonographers and captured almost 2,400 patients. 
The pool sensitivity was 94% and the specificity was 96%. More importantly, the positive likelihood ratio was almost 22, with a confidence interval spanning 12 to 38. And the negative likelihood ratio was 0.06, with a confidence interval spanning from 0.04 to 0.1. So adding ultrasound to your assessment actually gives you a diagnostic odds ratio of 359. I've never actually seen an odds ratio used that way, but that's an enormous odds ratio. In a spoonful, bedside ultrasound is effective and accurate in assessing intussusception in young children. And so finally, the fifth article, titled Electrocardiographic Diagnosis of Acute Coronary Occlusion Myocardial Infarction in Ventricularly Paced Rhythms Using the Modified Scarbosa Criteria out of the Annals of Emergency Medicine. I don't know why, but I love the Scarbosa Criteria. They're easy to remember, and they accomplished something that was previously thought to be impossible, which is the determination of ACS in a patient with left bundle branch block or a ventricular paced rhythm, when, you know, the usual STEMI criteria fail. The original Scarbosa criteria were highly specific, but not very sensitive for occlusion MI. Then, in 2012, Smith et al. proposed the modified Scarbosa criteria, which was a significant improvement. But let's take a look at a big trial, checking just how well these criteria stack up against MIs in patients with ventricularly paced rhythms. This was a multicenter international observation case-controlled study spanning 10 years in adults with patients with ventricular paced rhythms who presented with symptoms of ACS. They had three groups, an occlusion MI group with angiographic evidence of coronary thrombosis and elevated troponins, and then two control groups, a non-occlusion MI group who underwent angiography but did not meet occlusion MI criteria, and a no-occlusion MI group who were randomly selected from just ER patients. The occlusion MI group had 59 patients, and the other two had 90 and 102. The modified Scarbosa criteria way outperformed the original criteria in terms of sensitivity. Modified criteria with expansion of the second criteria to V4 to V6 had a sensitivity of 86% compared to the originals, which were just at 56%. Both rules were highly specific for occlusion MI at 96 and 97%, and a bit lower for non-occlusion MI at 84 and 90%, with modified and then original respectively. Limitations of this study include that this was a case control study, and then their multicenter international design introduces some variability between sites, but these factors could have affected all groups. In a spoonful, the modified Scarbosa criteria are the way to go when assessing ventricularly paced rhythms for ACS. The modified criteria were much more sensitive and still just as specific as the originals. Alright, that was a good day, that was a good day. Let's do a quick wrap up and see what we covered. First off, having a lot of return customers, stop being so friendly, duh, I'm kidding. But really, those were some low evidence but good points about dealing with low-risk recurrent chest pain patients. Second, don't give up on statistics, guys. They're humbling, but they're our friend. Just learn a little bit at a time. Third, benzos are the heroes of status epilepticus, but you can be the master of the interictal period. Just order those proper investigations, speak with neurology for a follow-up, and start them on the right drugs if it's necessary. Fourth, I really like how our author, Ashley Haggerty, summed this one up. She recommends to combat those colicky cries with ultrasound waves. Ultrasound is a good test for intussusception in children. And finally, from the last article, we like sensitive tests in the ER. 
Using the modified Scarbosa criteria instead of the original criteria gives you a lot more sensitivity without sacrificing specificity for diagnosing occlusion MI and ventricular pace rhythms. And that wraps us up. You've earned them. We offer them. CME credits provided through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org. Links to all the articles that we've summarized here today can also be found at that very same place where, if you'd like to, you can sign up for our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here at the Journal Feed is try to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thank you.